Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Hendrik Thomas trained as a chef but fell in love with wine when he was working at a restaurant in the Napa Valley. It was a decision which led to a very successful career as one of the world's top sommeliers. Now a journalist, wine importer and video blogger, he's a fascinating interviewee. Our chat covered great wine lists, mushrooms, pumpernickel, the craft of good service, meeting Robert Mondavi, and what it's like to write for Playboy magazine. Hello, Hendrik, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm very well, and how lovely to hear your voice after so long. Um, lots of stuff to talk about, because you've had this amazing career. You know, you've been a very, very top civilian. You're now running a wine business. You're a communicator. You know, you're doing video podcasts and blogs. You write a bit of everything. So lots of stuff to catch up on. But we've got to start, as we always do, with the beginning, right? Mm. Uh-huh. Um, where were you born and brought up? I mean, Germany, obviously, but whereabouts? Yeah, well, I think, I think you know, Germany isn't, isn't such a let's say, isn't as huge or big country like the United States, but it would be like Oklahoma, maybe in the United States. And uh, I'm from a town, I'm from a town called Gütersloh, which is, interestingly enough, the Brit- the former British zone of Germany. You know, we had the uh, Russian yeah. zone, the American yeah. zone, and that was in the British zone. So yeah. it's more to the north. Ah, and it's in what, Westphalia, was it? Yeah, it's called, it's in Westphalia. It's even called, I mean, it has Eastern Westphalia, yeah. which I think is a bit cynical. So you have East and West together. So yeah. Eastern Westphalia, that's the, the small district where I'm from. And, and no vineyards nearby, presumably, in that bit of Germany. That is absent. There is really no vineyards. And I don't think even to this point there are vineyards, even though probably it would be possible now. But mm. no, it's the land of beer and corn. So mm. that's a spirit. <laughs> and, and, and were your parents foodies or wine drinkers? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, that, that whole region is not necessarily known for the, let's say, its culinary delights. Uh, Napoleon and his troops were there for three years, and I think they fled after, after the food. So we didn't even have to fight them. They just went. But, but <laughs> the food was so bad, right? <laughs> well, that's what people say, but we do have some specialities, and I'm sure you have heard Pumpernickel. Yes. <laughs> which is a, which is a quite heavy black malted bread and well one slice is enough and you won't be hungry for the next two weeks. <laughs> and so you know you trained as a chef originally didn't you in Gutteslow uh, yes. apprenticeship as a chef yeah um, what made you want to become a chef? <laughs> I think it, I had no other option I, I, I wasn't very well behaved at school to be honest and I think my parents were desperately looking that I would find a job mm. and uh, then, you know, in those days, it was quite difficult to find a job. It's a different, it's a different story now where you have mm-hmm. so many offers, especially for the young people. So basically, my parents always thought like, oh, you like food, you, you like eating and you like drinking too, at, you know, at the age of 16. And then they said, we tried to get you a job there. And I have to say, I liked it a lot. I liked in those days, you would work in a brigade. And of course, like say, when you start, you have to start. It's a bit like going to the army, really. Mm. <laughs> Because, I mean, you did go into the army, didn't you? Well, you did your military service like everybody. And then you went off, first job, Hamburg, and you were a saucier, making sauces. Was that the only thing you did, make sauces? 
I had well, many, many other things, and I didn't stay long, to be honest. It's in those days, I think um, chefs were overly severe, and I it always well, I always had the feeling this is this is you know working 12, 14, 15 hours a day, six days a week. It's not that I was shy of the work, but I was basically you, you didn't get any um recognition for what you were doing and things like this and i did i didn't feel very comfortable to be honest though it was a two michelin star place and the food was wonderful we put out uh, but it was a bit like being in prison <laughs> <laughs> and your big break now i mean a big turning point in your life yeah. was you went to the napa valley right in the early early 90s and was that to work in a restaurant yeah that, that was at the auberge du soleil and I, I had to i have to say after my, let's say, mediocre experience in Hamburg, uh, going to the Napa Valley, that was a different life. That was open-minded. That was really, was really nice. You know, warm people. Um, it was so much about food and wine and about the good life. And I have to say, America in, in those days, um, it seemed like, especially Napa Valley, was, I, I had the, let's say, the luck to be in a place where things were just about to start. Mm-hmm. Even to explode. So, what was the wine scene like? I mean, it, it, it's not as big as it was now, but it, it, you know, Napa Valley was reborn in the sixties, really, with with Robert Mondavi opening his winery. What did it become like by the time you got there in the early nineties? I, I think, uh, even though you mentioned it started in the sixties, uh, it also took them a couple of decades to mm-hmm. to become more self confident mm-hmm. about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And in the nineties, I think they were there. They, mm-hmm. You could see this. So basically, you could go to a Camus vineyard and you could meet the owners uh, mm-hmm. still in those days, and mm-hmm. you could shake hand and. And they would say, oh, hey, who, what, who are you? I said, I'm Hendrik. Where are you from? From Germany. Oh, and then, you know, let's try some of our old vintages of the special selection or um, Mr. Mondavi. I met him many times. And um, you would, Joe Heitz, uh, Warren Wignarski, all these guys, they were still around and they were yeah. basically really involved, real entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was like heaven. You might, I mean, you meet Al Brownstein, you go for a tasting and, you know, he would take two hours for you to, to do a tasting <laughs> with a person who has basically, you know, I didn't have a large, uh, let's say, p- buying power or anything. So you showed up as a, still as a chef or you started yeah. to move into wine by then? Exactly. I would just say, hey, my name, I would call them. I would mm. ask them, do you find time? I'm very interested in wine. Uh, it's my passion. I'd like to find out more. And um, I'm, can I go come for a tasting? And he would say, yes, sure. Come over. And he would sit there for one or two hours or even longer sometimes and, and, and taste wine with me. And that was wonderful. That was very personal. And, and how, did, how did the move happen from food? You were out there as a chef in, in, into wine. Was there a moment when you suddenly thought, hey, you know, I want to do wine? And I know you work for a, as a seller rat for a bit at Cane Cellars yeah. and tell us yes. about that. But how did the move happen? Now, that move basically, you know, coming from the background where I basically came from, you know, a place with virtually no wine, let's say not with the greatest uh, food and wine culture at all. Um, I was always, always interested in wine. I would read books. Uh, I remember, I recall when I was working in Hamburg in the uh, Landhauschera in that two Michelin star place, they had a huge wine list and I would always stand when, whenever I had time in front of the wine list and would look at the labels and would look at um, the, the, all the different varieties where they, you know, because they had a huge wine cellar mm. and that was really, really interesting, but it was a world because being a chef, you're basically being far away from that. Mm. So that, that's really, but, but, and then in, in, in a private matter, I had some 
friends or my parents had some friends who were into wine and luckily some of them would pour me some and uh it's like it's a i think it's a magic moment uh when you find something where you can think like wow especially when you're young mm. wow this is where i would like mm. to engage and, and that happened in the states did it really that 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 movement decide the decision mm. to go into wine no that that i think was before but there was no chance to to basically Sommeliers in those days, there were, it was a, a, a very rare profession. It still is. Mm. But in, in those days, it was also quite elite. Mm. And I think to some extent that is still, mm. though this, I think it's changing now. But in those days, I mean, maybe Germany had like in the eighties, five sommeliers or mm. six sommeliers. That's it. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, this, and so in the States, uh, I had the, the opportunity to meet all these people. I, when I had a day off, I would, drive to all the wineries at that time i think there were like 200 wineries in the valley but i also would go to uh, central coast even you know to shalom vineyards i would go to uh, alameda and there were contra costa there even were some older wineries and in the napa valley i tried to visit as many people as possible hmm. and i did and uh, this was like basically i wanted to build my palette hmm. and how did you get the job at cane cellars was that just a vintage job yeah, that was basically on a side job as uh, my roommate, he was from New York and he was the chef of the winery. So uh, he, he asked me, can you help me? And then basically I met Craig, the, the winemaker in those days. And then that guy, he would ask us, hey, can you guys help during the during the harvest? Yeah. So I mean, th that American, the two years you spent in America sound like a really important part of your life, really, in that both personally and professionally. Yeah, it was very inspirational, I have to say. And I mean, uh, Europeans and also in Germany, they were bitching about the American food and wine culture. And I think in Germany, we should be very humble about what we say, because I think America has a great wine culture and a great food culture. Mm -hmm. And that was already existing in those days. But what I particularly liked about um, the California lifestyle in those days, people were really open and friendly and they were curious. Mm -hmm. I, I spent a, a year at school in the States when I was 18 mm -hmm. and I found exactly the same thing. It was very, it was very inspiring really coming from England where, especially in England, people tell you, oh, you can't do that. You know, you're not qualified to do that or you're not good enough to do that. And exactly. I think in America, they have a very positive attitude to things and that's great, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think they, which I liked, I mean, like think of like a person like Mr. Mondavi, you would go to him. And he would say, hey, my name is Robert. Who are you? I'm Hendrik. Where are you from? From Germany. And, oh, okay. But later on, I would meet him many times when he would come to Germany. And like the same with Paul Draper and uh, all these great persons, personalities. And exactly what you were saying, I think in Europe, it's not only that it was in Germany. I think it was the same in England yeah. and France all over. Yeah. So you went back to Germany. You yep. went to hotel management school and started to train as a, as a sommelier. Yeah. I think you were in, you were in Heidelberg, weren't you? I mean, just tell us, I mean, you were saying that there were probably what half a dozen sommeliers in Germany at the time. I mean, how many people were on the course training to be sommeliers? We were six. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're going to try to double the number of sommeliers. Well, we in <laughs> it's exactly. It's, but uh, you know what is also about this? I had the feeling I had to go back because I, I had the feeling like, I mean, uh, you can be a good taste or you can taste a lot of wines, but you need to have some solid background. Mm -hmm. This is why I went there, really. And this, this was the, there was an opportunity. So that was the uh, second course they've ever done on the Heidelberg Hotel School. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so we were quite exotic. It was the second ever course for sommeliers. Yes, yes. Well, amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's not yeah. that long ago, right? I mean, what year was that? What would that have been? It was in 1994, 1995. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> 
Because only yeah. thirty years ago there were six sommeliers in Germany. Yeah. yeah, and you and you did you worked at another winery, didn't you? While you were there, where did you yeah. work? this this was part of this was part of the deal. Uh, when when you wanted to enter the the school, you had to do a stint at a winery. Hmm. Uh, they wanted just to you know they wanted to make sure that you basically not only talk that you also would dig hmm. in the <laughs> wine. And this is this is what happened. So I went to the Rheingau. Uh, and where did you work in the Rheingau? Um, it's basically, uh, you know, the, uh, Johannesberg, which yeah. is across and you yeah. have the castle on top and on, on the valley floor, you have the Johanneshof. It's a very f- nice family yeah. driven winery with very classic wines. Hmm. D- tell us a little bit about, about teaching someone to be a good sommelier, because you're a very good communicator as well. I just wonder how much of learning to be a good sommelier is down to personality and, and intuition. You know, can, hmm. can you make a sommelier in a sense? Uh, in the, I mean, in I, I'm now for more than 30 years in the business, and I've had many, many young colleagues, sommeliers, mm-hmm. and um, what I noticed is like a lot of, a lot of what has to come, it has to come from the inside. I mean, yeah. you first, first of all, you, there has to be a desire to really work as a sommelier, and uh, then the second, I think. Um, you can't, yeah, of course you can train and you can be trained, but mm. uh, a lot of people are afraid and say, oh, I have not not a good palate, which mm. is not true. Many people have a great palate. They just don't know how to communicate. Or mm. maybe they are missing the missing a bit of that, uh, what you, uh, your self-esteem. Yeah. And, and, you, and you need to build that in people. You need to, yeah, you need people who are generous to you so you can be generous to others. And you have to be a bit of a showman, don't you, in a way, to be a good sommelier? I th- yeah, I think you have to be a communicator and you have to be very good with people. Mm. And I think it's equally important to be good with people and because you want something from them because they're coming to your restaurant. They want to want to have a nice night mm. and they're going to spend maybe an awful lot of money. Mm. So basically you have to help them to get the best experience, what they want to have. And, and, what, and a bad sommelier is somebody who doesn't do that, who doesn't give you a good experience really. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the worst is in the, of a bad sommelier is patronizing. Mm-hmm. Patronizing and trying to convince you to something which you don't want. And uh, it's still a craft, really. I mean, th- that job is a craft, first of all. right? The right stemware, the right temperature. Mm-hmm. You have a great cellar. You build up a nice cellar. I mean, it, this is no rocket science. This is basically mm-hmm. really if you – basically it's a traditional job. If it, it becomes an art when you come to the table and make people happy. Mm. And if you manage to make 90% of your clients on a night happy, mm. I think then you deserve the title to become a great sommelier. And, and part of that, in a way, is letting people drink what they want with what they want. But also part of your job was when you were sommelier to, to, to recommend wines, right, to go with certain dishes. I just wonder, are, are there any tips you could give to people, if you, things that you would always follow as a sommelier? Think, okay, you know, match this with that or... Yeah, I mean, there is, there is some great, great matches. Like if you think, I, I would say, I would think more on a larger scale, I think sweet and salt, mm. salty wines go extremely well with, uh, uh, let's say salty wines go extremely well with, um, sweet products or the, or the other way. Sometimes mm. I just think of foie gras and mm. of course, sauternes, which is super classic or oysters mm. and a very mineral salty, Chablis. I mean, super mm. classic stuff, really. Mm. And then you can play, of course. Then you don't, you can, let's say you still keep the oysters. And then you think of uh, wines from the Canary Islands, maybe, which are super salty. And then you match that. Mm. That's, be- I think, where it becomes interesting. But the, let's say, the, 
the salt and the, the, uh, the, the mineral aspect always be, have, have to stay basically, yeah, it's the same proportions, but you yeah. can have wines from other regions now. I, but, uh, I, I really believe in the classic stuff and, uh, but it doesn't have to be. If someone wants to have a white wine for the whole menu and even wants to have it with a steak, I mean, it's, it's his choice, really. I mean, and who cares, really, don't you think? I, I do care, but it's 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 still. I mean, it's it's his responsibility. And yeah, so yeah. this night or her night, sorry, yeah. his yeah, or her night, you know, probably yeah. hers these days. Yeah. Um, I mean, can you think of any truly terrible food and wine matches you've had where you thought, oh no, maybe another sommelier has recommended something in a restaurant? You thought, okay, I'll try it, and then you taste it and you think, what a disaster. Yeah, white white asparagus and claret or red Bordeaux. I think <laughs> that. Well, people do eat a lot of asparagus in this country because we are very proud on our white asparagus season is, you know, sometime in spring, uh, early summer. Yeah. And they, they are delicious, but they are, let's say, nutty and they have a very distinct taste. And then you have a Bordeaux with lots of uh, acidity and um, lots of uh, uh, tannins yeah. to me. Yeah, but, but people do do this, and I mean, let them do it. I mean, for sake, we, uh, sommelier, and I think in the wine business, we shouldn't be dictators, and we should behave like dictators. We should, mm. we should give advice or show them our passion. Yeah, very true. I think um, people sometimes talk about food wines, don't they? Do you think does that term mean anything? Do you think it has any validity? I think it has because there is also television wines. <laughs> you know, those, those big, rich white wines or red wines, very oaky, a little sweet maybe, uh, which you can drink by itself. I mean, they are probably a meal by themselves. But food wines, they have acidity, they have phenolics, they have a green, maybe a green flavor to it, and they only develop with food. Yeah. And that's yeah. sometimes very simple. It, it can be a slice of meat or a slice of cheese. Uh, and then, Wow. Something's happening there. And what's a television wine? That it's a big, big wine that you can drink on its own, is it? Yeah, exactly. Like some something from a hot climate. Uh, in Germany, you know, people drink a lot of Primitivo, which also has a lot of residual sugar. And uh, those wines you can drink by themselves. But not my preferable wine, but I think that's... Yeah, pe people do drink not only with food and to, or let's say, drink wine with food. They don't look for the combination. It's also mm -hmm. a commodity drink. Many. I like that idea of television wines. So tell us, so from 1992, when you graduated, 2008, you worked as a sommelier in a series of very good restaurants, sometimes Michelin-starred restaurants, culminating obviously very famously at the Hotel Luisi Jacob in Hamburg. Yeah? And your list there was voted, what, best in Germany by Gomio. You won Sommelier of the Year several times. Just tell us what for you makes makes a good wine list. I mean, does it have to be a telephone directory? Does it have to be one of those big, thick lists? Or can a good list be short? I, uh, oh, yes, uh, for sure. I think you basically gave the answer to your question. Mm. But uh, I think a wine list has to be suitable to the establishment. I mean, I find a big wine list, I find very intriguing when it becomes to lux, when it comes to luxury, to many choices. Mm. Uh, you find maybe something very exotic at a good mm. price, which mm. you never find somewhere else. So mm. therefore, I think a, a big list is a great thing. But I think a great wine list has to be balanced and it has to be matched with the uh, environment and with the food and, and all the other stuff, which is basically built around it. So no, uh, a big wine list or a big portfolio doesn't make a great wine merchant. I think it has to be balanced and suitable. 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I like what you say. I mean, this idea sometimes with big lists, we're wine geeks, right? I mean, the, you, you, the really the joy of them sometimes is finding the bargain on the list. Exactly. And you think, yes, yes, they've still got that. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes the sommelier probably thinks, oh, these guys are smart because they know they found the wine. Right. Yeah. We call it a uh, Kalkulationsfehler in German. This is exactly, basically, you go in and you try to find the, the, the only wine which is basically uh, listed at the wrong price, to basically, <laughs> to, to your advantage. So what does that word mean, Kalkulation? What do you call it again? Kalkulationsfehler. That's another tongue breaker. <laughs> yeah, go on. Now, what does it mean, literally? Oh, a calculation mistake. mistake. Uh, it's a calculation mistake. Oh, well, they yeah, got the exactly. wrong price. They got the wrong price. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they, they forgot to raise the price uh, yeah. for a couple of times and yeah. you find it at a very good price. Yeah. Therefore, I think great wine lists can be fun. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed your company whenever I've met you around the world because you always have fun. You know, you make wine fun. Tell us about the big bottle party because that does sound like fun. Where, uh, where did you do that? Yeah, we, we uh, basically, this is what we started in 2008, right before I left um, the, the place in the Hotel Jakob where I used to work. But, but I had this feeling I had to, I had to create something like, you know, these winemaker dinners and this is all nice, but you have to give people the choice in finding something for themselves. When you do a winemaker's dinner, then they have to sit and listen. They might like the guy or they don't like him or her. Maybe they like that vintage or they like that label. But in a big bottle party, it's like you invite 30 or 50 winemakers and they all bring large formats from their cellar, which were stored properly. And they would open it for three to 500 guests and everybody could run and exchange and talk. And this is basically what I loved in the United States, in California in those days. This basically that people would talk about how they feel about wine hmm. and, and not so much intimidating, like, who are you or, hmm. or I'm drinking this and not hmm. this basically bullshit talk about who has the longest in the room or the shortest. <laughs> might be. Long, uh, sorry, excuse me. That's a very German, Germanic um, expression for it. But, 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 you know, for me, it's so important to, to that people uh, could walk and don't have to sit all the time. And then you have some great food alongside, um, flying buffet and all these things. And this went through the roof basically. Yeah. And that, uh, my, when I left the place, they kept the idea. <laughs> it's still it going. Established. <laughs> it established. Yes. And then it established all over Germany. Many other places also yeah. tried in doing big bottle yeah. parties. And, and, and tell us about the Master Sommelier, because it's a very difficult exam to pass. I think you were the second person in Germany to get it. D did you, did you enjoy the process? Did you enjoy doing the exams? <laughs> there, there's, of course, there's always a, a downside and an upside. Let's let's talk about the downside. I had to go five times, yeah. so that that was super difficult. And at the at the fifth time I I went there, I felt a bit like, oh, if, I hope I can make it finally. But uh, what I think is so important, you're not doing this for your ego. I wanted to learn, and I, I enjoyed basically every time I went there, even though I didn't, I wouldn't pass it. I, I had to concentrate and it basically kept me to the studies and kept me to, uh, to tasting wine and to become better. So there is, there is nothing wrong with not do, you know, with failure or let's say not passing for the first time. And, uh, yes, I, I did enjoy it. And what about the performance side of it? Is that very much like the competitions? Did you do, you did some competitions because you won the Ruinar, I think, didn't you, in Germany, among other things? Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's uh, what I, what is nice about the Master Sommelier. It's an exam. It's so mm. it's not a competition. In a competition, 
um, is, is a different mindset, is a different um, pace. Here, uh, I think the difficult part of the master sommelier is you have to be good at tasting, you have to be pretty good at theory, and you also have to be very good at performance and also how, how to serve guests. And it's, it's executed by people who have been doing this also, some, some of them for decades. So this is nice. You're not, you're not judged by only theoretic people. You are judged by people who are professionals and have, have passed the exam previously. Yeah. I mean, you, you had one year, but I think 2008, 2009, as head of wine at the Metro Group. And then since 2009, you've been freelance, haven't you? Just tell us how you divide your time, because you do lots of different things, don't you? Yeah, I think this is also important, uh, because that idea had to, when I left the, the restaurant business, I wanted to do something else. And I got I got this offer, and that was, of course, very tempting, mm. as it was paid very well, and um, also gave me the opportunity to, not to escape, but to think differently and to experience the wine trade, uh, not being a sommelier anymore, because a sommelier, you are basically, um, you know, you're working with a certain clientele and you are caught with a certain slice of the wine business. So for the Metro Group, uh, I didn't even apply there. They asked me if I want to come and I said, well, I'm not sure if I should go. And then I did. And then I found out, wow, this is just about spreadsheets. And this is, this is not the wine business. This is selling a commodity. And I, I think the problem is in these huge companies, um, when you start there, you, you start with enemies and you, you start with people who support you. And how to say, uh, it, it doesn't feel good right from the beginning when you get there. Basically, you need to, you know, get your slice there mm-hmm. and fight for your, um, for your position. But what, what I didn't like about it is, um, that it had nothing to do with craft and it had nothing to do with, um, fun. And it's, uh, that word again, fun. Yeah. Fun. No, it was missing yeah. that. So tell us what you do now. I mean, how do you divide your time? Yeah. And then, then I, uh, I did the freelancing and mm-hmm. I always did. I, I was lucky enough to, to participate in some TV shows. I could write in certain columns in weekly papers. I even made it to the Playboy, you know. As I, I'm, I'm impressed by that. The only person <laughs> I know is written for Playboy. The, uh, many, many people <laughs> think that. And I, I can tell you the best part about it was like, the parties. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, this what I this what I always liked about the wine business, that it is, would be interesting enough for other people to un- to get a little bit of that lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So this this what always I was always curious about it, and um, but but I felt that I have to go, I have to do something else, and this is when mm-hmm. I basically discovered the internet, mm-hmm. and th- that changed the whole thing because television, you are basically not free in what you want to say, maybe, and mm-hmm. in your decisions and uh, writing for magazines always has, let's say. Basically, if you're writing for the Playboy, you know, you only have so and so many words which mm-hmm. you can write. And then we always debated it if these are the right words and how oh, this is too complicated, make it easier. Our, our, our subscribers don't understand what you're saying here, which is great. You learn a lot. Mm-hmm. But the internet all of a sudden was there. It was just mm-hmm. starting. And that was where I could see, like, wow, 
that that could be my my place. That's the same for you. Yeah, because it? it meant in a way you could do you could do you know live shows, you could do podcasts, you can you can do Instagram live, you can interview people, and and you created this thing really called Vine Am Limit. What does yes. that mean? Wine at the limit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's because uh, I I was working um, with a big importer here in Germany or a large importer. It's called Havesco, hmm. and Havesco um, they they saw that I wanted to do something online, hmm. and so they asked me, ah, oh, let's do something together. But after two years, I I also thought like, wow, still still feels like a cage. Hmm. I want to do it on my own. So Vinam Limit basically was born. After I, I did this two-year show called Tivino, where we already were combining video shows with selling wine, mm. tasting wine, mm. interviewing people, traveling, mm. all these things. And I think in 2008, 2009, that was still early, or 2010, that was still very early stage. Mm. And Vinam Limits basically started in 2013, after a couple of years of freelancing. And Vinam Limits, uh, yeah, the first year... I, I wasn't really sure where I was going because I was starting to importing, or I was already importing some wines mm -hmm. to Germany, but more, let's say, on a very humble base. Mm -hmm. And I thought, like, come on, let's do it. I mean, these are the people you really like, and they make great wines. And then after a short, let's say, half a year, year of just purely blogging, mm -hmm. uh, it became uh, it became a wine import. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you have a very good list, you know, you put about 70 wineries you work with. Yes. I think the first was Evan Sardi, wasn't it? 2002 or something like that? Yeah, that yeah. was basically as, as a fave, or let's say, not it's fave sounds a bit, um, nah, but let's say in 2002, because I visited him, I tasted his wine, I thought it was great. That was, that guy was amazing and nobody knew him. And we would drive up there to the Swartland, Malmesbury, and meet this guy. He came three hours late. I never waited so long for uh, <laughs> for a person. But but you know how even is. Once he's yeah. there, he fills the room with yeah. joy, with fun, and he will tell you about what's his dream and his passion. Mm -hmm. And we became friends over the years. And then he came to Priorat, and I I visited him in Priorat. And so he asked me in, on the on that first visit, he asked me. I think he was producing like 6,000 bottles of wine or 8,000. Oh, do you know someone in Germany who could take my wine, a good wine importer? And I thought, no, they're all too traditional. They don't, they don't probably, and maybe one of two of them would take your wine, but I don't know if you'll be happy. And I said, how many bottles do you want to sell? And he said, oh, 500 would be nice. And I said, 500, this is probably what I could drink in a year. Okay, I take them. <laughs> And then we and then we imported that. That was a little easier in those days. We shipped those wines to Germany, and I tried to sell it, and it was desperate. I have yeah. to say, not because of the wine. It was just desperate. Oh, it's a wine from South Africa. Wow, yeah. no uh, wines from the New World, which I hate that term. I think mm. overseas is better. But however, so mm. we, we drank a lot of those wines for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're on allocation, right? And now they're on allocation, but, <laughs> but, but even Saudi has done a great job. And I mean, I was so happy mm. to meet some people at a very early stage, mm. like uh, the Malineurs, for example. I mean, you're, you're also, you're one of your focus is the South Africa, yeah. Chris Alheit. Yeah. I met at a pool table and he would say, Hey, my name is Chris. I say, Oh yeah. Hello. My name is Hendrik. Uh, I can't give you any bottle of wine. I don't have any left here. But it seems like you're a nice guy. And I said, well, I'm not sure if you're a nice guy. But, but then he asked me, can I send you a bottle? Well, no, but, but it's, just, it's just a way of making conversation. And, and then can I send you a bottle? And I said, yes, please do 
to Chris Arla and uh, he sent us a bottle and my wife and I, we tasted that wine. We said, fuck, that <laughs> guy <good>. is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, how, who, how do you decide who you're going to import? There had to be people you like, basically, yeah? Uh, well, the decision is between my wife, Bianca, and me. Mm. And uh, I, I, you know, in the in the years being in the wine business, I, I met so many people like Philippa Pato, for example. I met her at a very early stage when she was just beginning. And I, I loved her. I loved her mission. Or um, Dirk Nieport was always a great mentor. And it's a great, he's a great friend. And he helped me to discover the wines of Busaco, which we also import in the United States. Uh, I, I, I looked at Arno Roberts because Andrea Malinu told me mm. Arno Roberts is interesting. So we, we tasted the bottle in South Africa. And I said, wow, that's awesome. Bodega Noemia from Patagonia. Hans is a machine, Danish dynamite. So, you know, so you meet all these crazy people. And this is, I think, I think more people should know the wine business is also a fun business. Of course, it's a money business, yeah. but it's, it's more than that. It's really to have good people around you and yeah create great atmosphere. I, I mean, I agree completely with you. I think it's, it's very true. You talked a little bit about when you brought Evans wines in at the start, nobody knew what they were. And they said, oh, South Africa. And I think you've also mentioned, I read somewhere else that uh, I think it was the interview you did with Gary Vaynerchuk online. He said in the early 90s, when you were starting out, Germans were drinking German wine, obviously, but mostly Riesling. And they were drinking French wines, really, the classics, maybe a bit of Italian. Um, has that changed now? I mean, you, you, you know, I think you've been a big part of it, really. Haven't you taking people towards different styles of wines? I, I, it's hard to say, and I wouldn't generalize it. I still think there is too much prejudice against wines, either if they're from the Eastern, let's say, like Georgia or Hungary or, you know, from those regions, mm. uh, which were behind the Iron Curtain, as mm. there is to the New World. Mm. I would say that's for the general public. I mean, in the, in the, let, let's say in the that niche where we're in, more and more people are open towards those wines. But it's some people mistake uh, the concepts uh, because I think there is great wines all over the world, and it's not one country mm. who has the recipe mm. uh, and to rule all the others. Mm. And that's of course we love France, of course we love Italy, but I find great wines nowadays. If, if it comes to the variety of Syrah. Wow. If you go to South Africa, you find some of the best Syrah in the world. I mean, mm. that wasn't the case 20 years ago, 25, but it's now the reality. It, it, it totally didn't exist, did they? You're, you're a very good taster, obviously. I suspect you're pretty good at blending too. And you've done two stints where you've worked as cellar hands here, yeah, once in California, once in Germany. Have you ever considered having your own winery? You know, the Weingut Hendrik Thoma. Does that sound uh, good? It sounds very good, but I'm too lazy. <laughs> no, I, I, have, I have so much respect for uh, making wine. And if I, I yesterday, Bianca and I, we tasted a wine from Remstal, from Heidle. And I thought like, wow, these guys are rocking it. I mean, those wines, Alemberger, 20 years ago in Germany, it would taste like a, a piece of oak tree or bark and a very concentrated and lots of tannins. And then I, you, you taste this wine so lifted, light and fresh. And we had a dry reasoning. I think like, wow, you have to be really dedicated and you cannot do this in, I mean, you can do a lot in one generation, but sometimes to make really great wines also, it takes very long. Mm. So it takes, I, no, more, it takes more than one generation. It, yeah, doesn't it? Well, I think it probably does in many cases. So Eben's first generation, yeah, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah, but that's rare. I agree with Super you. Super rare. Yeah. But if you could make wine, let's just dream. I've just given you 10 million pounds. Okay. Um, <laughs> dollars, right? Where would I, you do it? 
I'd rather take the 10 million and don't, <laughs> don't tell you. But, but, but if, if I'd had to, um, if, if I wouldn't look at the working aspect, just about the landscape and about the people and the food, I'd, I'd try California again. But then I yeah. certainly need 10 millions to start. <laughs> That's about one hectare these days, right? <laughs> yes. But I, I'd like to go to places like where it's cool, where you get a fresh breeze. I, yeah. I'd like to try it in Occidental maybe. Hmm. Um, I think the canneries would be a place where I could go. I, I think here in Germany, uh, we have some really nice spots. Um, the Mosul, of course, would be very nice. Hmm. As the Mosul, I think, is a fantastic wine region. Hmm. So there is many options, but I... I <sighs> It's hard to say if there is only one region, but yeah. uh, I'd like to go to California again just for that, because I think the lifestyle also with the good mm. food and mm. um, and people, I think that's would still attract me. And South so, Africa, so it, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so you know, California is part of you in a way, it's, but it's almost worked its way into your DNA. We could say, I don't exactly. know. Yeah. Yes. Last question is, how do you get away from wine? I mean, you're a busy guy, right? I mean, I can't count all the things you do. You're always popping up in the internet. You're selling wine. You're busy, busy, busy. Is there a moment when you just say, oh, I need to relax? How do I relax? <laughs> I like to go to the forest. I call it my green room, you know, the green room <laughs> musicians use. And uh, I, 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 I really like mushrooms. And I, I'm. <laughs> do you have you ever collected mushrooms, Tim? I, I haven't. And I, maybe I'll do it with you. That sounds like fun. If you come, we do, I have some really nice spots. And look, going into the forest, just having the green, uh, you know, the, all the, the, let's say the flavors of the forest, you, you have the light, you have the different smells. It's, I recalibrate there. And if I find a sap, mm -hmm. then I look for another sap and I find another one. And then you find another one and another one. And then you think of dinner and then you think of what wine should I drink with it? And that makes you fucking happy. <laughs> I just fry that. What would you do? Fry them with a little bit of oil and or butter yeah. and some, and some garlic or something like that. I think I read somewhere in a restaurant in New York, make it nice. I would make it simple. Make it nice, make it simple. Yeah. Make it simple. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think that's probably true of wine in a way, isn't it? I think so. I, I, mm. I think, you know, wine can be complicated and can be mm. sophisticated, but it's really what, what you want to make from it. And I think the best from wine you can make is that you can enjoy it and have mm. fun. And, and it is not about the big names or the big name dropping. It's really about what warms your heart and soul. Mm. Well, I think that's a fantastic moment which to leave it. It's the wines. It's something that warms your heart and soul. Um, Hendrik, thank you for being such an amazing guest. Um, I think people could just sense your amazing uh, you know, <laughs> enthusiasm and passion for wine, but also your gifts as a communicator. I mean, I love what you're doing. It's been too long, my friend. Um, I'm going to catch up with you very soon. Mushrooms, probably now is a good time to go. Maybe we'll do it this time next year. Cool. Go pick some oh. mushrooms. It's too cold now. You have to come a little earlier, but I, I have some great spots and they are super secret, I tell you. Okay, well, we're going to the green room, right? We're going to the green room together, Tim, and we take a <laughs> bottle of wine and, yeah. Okay, it's well, a date. And, and, you know, just continue with our happy life. That sounds good. It's a date. Thanks See you soon, my friend. See you, bye. Wine is always fun when Hendrik is around. I really love his infectious passion for the subject. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the Bordeaux-based consultant, Pascal Chatonet. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.